welcome back to the wrestling room. And you notice this is a little different backdrop than normal. I'm not in my office, uh, as you've already figured out, I'm sure. I'm at my parents' house in Southern Oregon visiting them. And so just wanted to share some thoughts with you from uh, some things that I've been wrestling with um, on the topic of three responses when God says to wait. Three responses when God says to wait. And if you're anything like me, when you hear the word wait, or you hear somebody telling you to wait, or you have to wait, uh, my guts just clench up. There's a tension that I feel. I, I can't stand to wait. Uh, if you know anything about the Seattle traffic, it is an exercise in learning how to wait as you creep down I-5 at one and two miles an hour uh, pretty much all the time. So I don't like to wait. When I was growing up, I had a little horse named Becky. She was 14 hands, so not a big horse, but she was a good sized horse, half Arab, half quarter. And one thing about Becky is she knew how to run. In fact, the first time I rode her, she about killed me. I couldn't get her stopped. But that was the story of our relationship, is me trying to get her stopped and her trying to keep me from stopping her. So when I'd pull on the reins to slow her down, she would just clench her jaw and bow her neck and do everything she could to keep going. She hated to wait. She hated to slow down. And uh, that's like a lot of us. We don't want to slow down. We just let us run. But what do we do when God says wait, when he pulls back on the reins of our life, when he puts us on pause, in a sense, what do we do? In the book of Acts, as we've been studying, Jesus had trained these disciples. He poured into them for years, for three and a half years, and they felt ready. They were poised, and Jesus then gave them the command to wait in Jerusalem until they were filled with power from on high until they were clothed. And so Jesus basically gets them all ready, gets them primed, and then says, wait. <laughs> so I want to answer the question, what do you do when God says wait, when he pushes pause on your life? Three responses. Number one, accept it. Accept it. Waiting, brothers and sisters, is daily fare for God's people. Waiting is a common part of our life with Jesus. In fact, the scripture has 105 times where it commands us to wait or waiting is mentioned. 105 times. This is not a minimal amount of times. This is a major part of our Christian life. We are certainly not going to have green lights all the way through. There are going to be red lights stopping us, causing us to have to take a pause. The scriptures littered littered with waiting periods. Many of, of the, the heroes of the scripture had major waiting periods in their lives. Abraham had 25 years between the time he was promised a son at age 75 and 100 years old when the son was born. Sarah was 65 and then 90 when she gave birth. David, King David, was promised a kingdom. He was anointed as king when he was somewhere between eight and 15 years old, but it wasn't until he was 30 that that promise came to be. He had a waiting period of anywhere from 15 to 22 years. Joseph, who was 17 years old when he received the crazy dreams from God about his family and about what he would be used to do, but it was 22 years later 
that those promises came to pass. And he was 30 when he ascended out of jail to the second most powerful place in all of the planet. But in major waiting periods, even Jesus, at age 12, we see him in the, in the synagogue with the religious leaders in the temple, I, I should say, with the religious leaders debating and, and astonishing them with his knowledge. But when his parents found him, they said, time to come home. And for another 18 years, Jesus waited Jesus spent 30 years waiting, preparing for three years of ministry, 10 years of preparation for one every one year of ministry. And that seems to be very common amongst people that God uses. There's much time of waiting, time that is not seen in the public eye, time in private, in secret, being prepared for the work God has them for. So when God puts us in a pause, when God pulls back on the reins of our life, when God says to wait, accept it. It's all part of his plan. It's all part of what God does to those who he uses. He puts them in periods of waiting. And it's so important to understand this because our whole culture doesn't want to wait. We are a microwave culture. Throw it in. Put, this, put, it, put it on for 30 seconds and boom, we're done. And God doesn't work that way. God is a crock pot God. He builds people, prepares people low and slow. It's been said that if you want to grow a squash, it takes a couple months. If you want to grow a mighty redwood, it takes decades. And God is building warriors, people who have spiritual girth. And so resign yourself to the crock pot plan of God in your life. Instead of resisting, just accept the fact that waiting is part of following God. You're going to have to spend time with the reins pulled back. Response number two, not only accept the waiting, but monitor your period of waiting because waiting can be very dangerous. It's a period of vulnerability. There is something very profound and precious about this waiting period, but it's not easy. And a lot of you are probably saying amen if you're in that same period. Elizabeth Elliot, the, the author, writer, and missionary wife, she said this, waiting on God requires the willingness to bear uncertainty, to carry within oneself unanswered questions. Uncertainty, unanswered questions, both unpleasant. And in that uncertainty and in those unanswered questions, there are two potential dangers and danger, danger zones that emerge. And I just want to point those out briefly. I've wrestled with both of them. I'm wrestling with both of them. And no doubt you have too. The first is anxiety, or you might even say panic. We don't see God doing anything. When you feel like your life is on hold, it's very easy to panic. Now, one classic example of this is the is King Saul in 1 Samuel chapter 13. Let me give you the background. King Saul has been anointed by Samuel the prophet. The Holy Spirit has come on him in power and Samuel has confirmed God is with you. God is with you. And then he says, not only is God with you, but I will be your ally and I will advocate for you and I will guide you and I will be a mentor to you. So Saul is in good hands, the presence of God, the mentorship of Samuel. 
But we see in chapter 13, King Saul is leading the people of Israel in their first battle against the Philistines, their mortal enemies. And I want to pick up the story in chapter 13 because what we see here is the fallout of someone who does not wait well. And Saul succumbs to anxiety and to panic. So I'm going to pick up in verse 6 of 1 Samuel chapter 13. Now, the context is there's a massive army from the Philistines that's gathered against them and is attacking them. And so verse 6 says this, when the men of Israel saw that they were in a strait, in other words, they were outnumbered, this was not good. It says, and the people were hard pressed. Then the people hid themselves in caves, in thickets, in cliffs, in cellars, and in pits. They bailed out like rats off a sinking ship. It says in verse 8, the King Saul was trembling. He was still on the battlefield, but he was trembling, and the people who were following him were trembling, like leader, like followers. Verse 8, now he waited seven days according to the appointed time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come. So Samuel had told him uh, formally, I will come to you on the battlefield and I'm going to offer a sacrifice that will garner God's favor, that will give you favor in this battle. But it is day seven and Samuel hasn't arrived. And in the mind of Saul, he's saying he's never going to come. We're never going to win this battle. And so he allows these very negative thoughts and he takes the situation into his own hands. Here's what it says. Verse 9. The people are scattering and says, So Saul said, Bring to me the burnt offering and the peace offering. And he offered the burnt offering. That wasn't his role. He wasn't a priest. He was a king, but he wasn't a priest. He was stepping into a jurisdiction that was not his. He stepped over a boundary. And as is usual, verse 10, as soon as he was done offering the sacrifice, what happened? Verse 10 came about as soon as he finished offering the burnt offering, that behold, Samuel showed up. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. But Samuel said, what have you done? Saul said, because I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the appointed days, which he had, but he just came right at the last minute, which is what God does so often, testing our faith. He said, therefore, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not asked the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. I forced myself. It's quite the wording. And Samuel said to Saul, you have acted foolishly. You have not kept the commandments of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. It's so vital in these times of waiting that we don't succumb to panic, that we don't say God is never going to keep his promises. I'm never going to get that job. I'm never going to be healed. I'm never going to find that person of, of my dreams, that man or woman of my dreams. I'm never going to overcome that sin. And we begin to think God has forgotten me. I'm wasting my life. I'm not getting any younger. <laughs> I hear the clock ticking. Others are succeeding and I'm not. And we start comparing ourselves. 
I'm missing out. How many of you have thought that? FOMO, fear of missing out, it's huge in times of waiting. I'm missing out. We see other people's lives flowing on down the fast lane. They're doing great things, we think. And we think, I'm doing nothing. I'm just sitting here languishing. I'm missing out. And we panic. And we begin to operate out of fear. And we begin to go into scramble mode. And we take things into our own hands. And we force things. We push things. We control. Then we begin to compromise. Because <laughs> we're losing hope. And we settle for good rather than God's best. And it's a mess. And it's a mess. Can you identify with any of this? This is a danger in a time of waiting that we get anxious and we panic. Here's something I wanna share with you, and that is this. Never doubt in the dark, in the time of waiting, in the time of the pause, when the reins have been pulled back. Never doubt in the dark what God has promised you, what God has told you in the light. In this passage, it says over and over, Saul saw certain things, the people of Israel saw the army. They allowed their eyes to dictate to them what truth was. God's promises are truth, not what we see. We walk by faith, we don't walk by sight. Never doubt in the dark what God has told you in the light. His promises are truth. And the scripture says, the entrance of your word brings light. So anxiety and panic is one danger in times of waiting. But the second danger is that of apathy. And we see that in Matthew chapter 24, verses 45 through 51. And I'll share just a few thoughts with regards to that. And this is a story where Jesus is describing his servants at work in the period of time before he comes back. That's describing us. And here's what he says. First of all, he says there's a wise and a faithful servant who is obeying and keeping charge of the things that he's been given. And he's blessed. And when the master comes, he finds him doing what he's been charged to do. But in verse 48, it says, but if an evil slave says in his heart, my master is not coming for a long time. In other words, there's a period of waiting and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with drunkards. The master will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour which he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. What is the principle here? It's that when we don't feel like God is using us, when we feel like he doesn't maybe really need us, he doesn't see us. There's nothing going on in my life that requires me to be spiritually sharp. I'm not that important to God. There are many others who are more gifted, more uh, important, more spiritual than I. In fact, he really doesn't even see me. And we have the same mindset as the evil serpent. Servant says, basically, the master's not coming for a long time. And he begins to display destructive behaviors. And brothers and sisters, when we are in a waiting period, panic and anxiety are one, one danger, but apathy is another danger where we just cave into temptation, and we fill that, that gap, that pause with behaviors that are destructive like this wicked and evil slave. So I wanna just say the second response to, let's reiterate the second response 
to times of waiting is monitor these times because they're times of vulnerability and danger where you can succumb to anxiety or apathy on either side and uh, derail your life. Derail your life. Don't do it. But the third response is welcome it. Welcome these times of waiting because waiting has a divine purpose. God is at work in the waiting. The waiting is not wasted. God is at work during this time. Now, I want to give you four different ways that God is working in us. God is working on us and working in us during these times of waiting based on four Hebrew words that we see in the Old Testament used for the word wait. There's four different Hebrew words for the word wait. And each of, this, each of them give us an insight into what God might be doing while we're waiting. So number one, the first Hebrew word is damam. And it means to be silent, to stand still, to wait silently, to be at rest. So the first thing that we see God doing during times of waiting is that God is working on our temperament. He's working on our temperament. He's developing in us self-control, self-control. Let me ask you this. What do you do when things don't go your way? What do you do when things don't go your way? When people take advantage of you, when uh, people fail you, when there are disruptions, there are dis uh, delays or disappointments, discouragements, what do you do? Well, Proverbs 25, 28 is a verse that has smacked me upside the head and that I've pondered many, many times. It says this, like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man or woman who has no control over his or her spirit. Proverbs goes on to say in 14, verse 30, a tranquil or peaceful heart is life to the body, but passion is rottenness to the bones. Passion is rottenness to the bones. When I read that verse, I just threw up my hands and said, Lord, I don't even know how to live uh, on this planet if passion is rottenness to the bones because I am a passionate person. <laughs> but so often God wants to use us, but we are reactive instead of responsive. We react to circumstances instead of responding to what God is doing, responding to the truth of God's word. And we're driven by emotion. We're driven by passion. We're driven by impulse. Uh, we're, and, and often we're explosive and even reckless. We're hasty, independent, controlling, I know in my parenting, this has been something that I've had to work very hard on and still have work to do. And that is that when things went wrong in my home and there were behaviors that needed to be addressed and disciplined, instead of doing it with peace, a tranquil heart, I would react to the situation and I would add my own anger and my own bad behavior on top of that which was already there. And it just was like throwing gasoline on the fire. And I know a lot of you can identify with this. And I ran into this amazing verse, Psalm 4.4, that really uh, was a reproof to me and also a principle that was very helpful and has been helpful. It says this, Psalm 4.4, be angry but do not sin. But then it gives an alternative. It says, meditate in your heart 
upon your bed and be silent. I'm going to read that again. Be angry and do not sin. Meditate in your heart upon your bed and be silent. What is this verse saying? It's saying this, when you are angry and it's justified, extract yourself from the moment and go get your heart right. Go get your anger under control. Meditate in your heart, upon your bed, and be still. And this is something that I have been working so desperately to do. Instead of being explosive and reactive, is extracting myself, getting my heart and my mind under control, focusing on the sovereignty, the control that God has over the situation, whether it be my kids or any other situation, my family life, my marriage, whatever it might be, my finances, meditate in my heart in a place away from the situation and be still, be silent. When God puts us in a waiting period, often he is working on our temperament, bringing, pulling back on the reins, building walls around our spirit where there are no walls, creating in us a tranquil heart rather than an explosive heart. So number one, God is working on our temperament, on our temperament. But number two, God is working on our timing. The second Hebrew word is the word chakad. It means to tarry, to stay, to linger, or to remain. And this is a word that deals with time, duration, So number two, God is working on our timing. He's developing endurance. I call it heart fitness. And the fruit of the spirit that he's developing is patience. Developing in us patience. Psalm 33.20 says this, Our soul waits or stays still for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So in the first Uh, The first iteration where God is working on our temperament, he is teaching us to stand still, to be silent. But number two, God is teaching us to stay still, not just to stand still, but to stay still. And this is faith-filled inaction. Let me say it again. Faith-filled inaction. In other words, we are developing the internal fitness to stay put until God says to move. To stay put until God says to move. My sister and her husband, John and Sherilyn, have purchased a beautiful uh, English golden retriever. And they're training her. And as a puppy, she just, like all puppies, is just out of control. Her body is throwing, you know, throws her body around. She's jumping up the whole nine yards. And uh, you love them, but they're, um, they're all over you. So last time I was with them, they had been doing a lot of work with her. Not only had they taught her to sit, but they taught her to stay. And I'm there and I'm a huge distraction. She just wants to pounce on me. And my sister has her at the back of the kitchen. I'm sitting in the next room in the, in the living room, but looking straight at her. And she's telling her, sit and stay. And that's what God is doing in us. He's not only saying sit still, but stay put until I tell you to move. Stay put until I tell you to move. 
Psalm 25, five says this, lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day. <laughs> this is about endurance. It requires that we be willing to live with discomfort, with discomfort. Our culture hates discomfort. Our culture seeks pleasure. It seeks comfort. But if we are going to discipline our heart not to move until God says move, it's going to be uncomfortable. We're going to have to learn to live with discomfort. I want to share this with you. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. For instance, you want to eat a banana, but it is green. You peel that thing open and bite into it, it is like chalk. <laughs> but you wait for the right timing and it's beautiful and sweet. The right thing at the wrong time is the wrong thing. And God is training us and teaching us to not only stand still, but stay still until he tells us to move. And in those times of waiting, God is building an endurance into our heart that allows us to wait for his timing. Timing is everything. God is the ultimate timekeeper of the universe and he is orchestrating. He's lining up events and details and people, weather, nature, natural circumstances to fit his timing. God is into logistics. He's into planning and timing is such a huge, huge part of what he does. So the second thing God is doing during these times of waiting is he's building endurance into us, patience into us. So when he says sit and stay, we don't go bolting across the kitchen, we obey. Number three, God is building into us or God is working on our trust. God is working on our trust. He's developing in us eager expectancy or hope. Here's what Isaiah 51.5 says. My righteousness is near, God is speaking. My salvation has gone forth and my arms will judge the peoples. The coastlands will wait for me and for my arm they will wait expectantly. They will wait in hope. This is the Hebrew word yakal, and it means to wait expectantly. And sometimes it's translated as trust. And so in these times of waiting, God is building into us a heart of trust. Now, my wife and I work every Tuesday night with couples who have prodigal sons, many of which have just created incredible chaos in their families, many of them due to drug use and all sorts of uh, prodigal behavior. But what we've noticed and, and what, we, what we see when we're work, working with these families is that when you've suffered much trauma, when you've lived with much drama in your life, you're just often waiting for the next shoe to drop, so to speak. You're waiting for the next crisis, the next disappointment, the next phone call, the next knock at the door from the police. And it creates a survival mentality, not a mentality of thriving, where you're waiting and you're living with anxiety and apprehension and fear instead of waiting 
in hope, trusting God's good heart, trusting that God is sovereign, God is in control. And in our minds, and we know in our heads that God is in control, we know all the right answers so often, but our hearts are telling us another thing. Our hearts believe something different. They, they tell us, you've got to keep that, that protection up. You can't let your guard down. But that is not the way that God wants us to live. He says, you've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so I want to read to you the words of, of this old hymn that I learned probably back before I was out of diapers. It's called, I Know Who Holds Tomorrow, because I think this is the mindset that God wants us to, to carry and to hold and to live from. I think the author of this song got, got it right. He says this, I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine for its skies may turn to gray. I don't worry or the future for I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him for he knows what is ahead. And then the chorus goes like this. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. And in verse two says, I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty, but the one who feeds the sparrow is the one who stands by me. And the path that be my portion may be through the flame or flood, but his presence goes before me and I'm covered with his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow and I know who holds my hand. And brothers and sisters, that is what God is trying to build into us. This mindset that says, listen, I'm not waiting for the shoe to drop. I'm waiting for God to, to show himself faithful, to show himself powerful, to show himself trustworthy in any circumstance, no matter what, because not only does he know what is gonna happen today, he knows what's gonna happen tomorrow, and he knows what's gonna happen throughout all of history, and he's with me, he holds my hand and I can trust him. And that is the heart that God is building in us when we are in a period of waiting. Period of waiting. Number four, God is working on our transformation, not only on our temperament, not only on our timing, not only on our trust, but also he's working on our transformation. God is developing our dependence upon him. The Hebrew word kava is the most used word for weight in all of the scripture. And it means to bind together, to entangle, to intertwine. And it's often a picture of the weaving or the braiding together of individual strands to create a powerful, strong rope. To create a rope. And so the word kava means and has the connotation of waiting on God in order to be bound together with him, to be united with him, to be entwined or entangled around him. And the verse that we so often quote is Isaiah 40, 31. It says this, those or they who wait upon the Lord, that's the word kava, who entangle themselves around, who unite themselves with, 
the Lord shall renew their strength. That literally means shall trade in their broken down strength, their depleted strength for his supernatural strength. They shall rise up on wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. That's the word kavah, waiting on the Lord, entangling ourselves around him, allowing him to transform us. That is what periods of waiting are all about. Transformation, where we scrap the phrase that is so common. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And we realize, no, it's not. If it's going to be, it's up to him. The scripture says, it's not by might nor by power, but my spirit, says the Lord. In other words, it's not my giftedness, my power, my creativity, my sharp mind, No, it's not about that. It's about the power of God working through this frail, cracked pot, this frail body, this frail mind, this frail heart, empowering it to do supernatural things. And in the times of waiting, that is what God is doing. He's transforming us. And though we don't feel it, and though it's difficult, and though we squirm, it's vital that we surrender to this period of, of, of waiting because God is transforming us. He's changing us. He's developing in us a dependence upon him and a partnership with him, a partnership with him. I want to close with one last story, and that is of a woman that I heard. I heard this story years ago, and it has left a profound impression on me. A mission organization asked a woman's CEO to come and lead their organization. And she was a high-powered CEO. She was a believer, a follower of Jesus. And so sensing that this was God's calling, she said, yes, I will do that. So she resigned her position as a CEO and she took over the leadership of this mission organization. And she was a get-it-done kind of woman. You know, time management, every second of the day being used, high, high giftings, high leadership ability, and she brought all that into this organization and it fell flat, just fell flat. Nobody responded to her. All of the things that made her successful in the corporate world were not happening in this mission organization. And so in frustration, she brought this before the Lord and felt that the Holy Spirit said to her, I want you to spend the first two hours of your day behind closed doors with me. And so she did. The very first two hours of her workday, you could find her or couldn't find her behind a closed door just spending time with Jesus. But over time, as she began to emerge from behind that closed door, waiting on God, entangling herself around God, being transformed, she would come out from that room and interact with those people, and they began to warm to her. And things turned around. And I'll never forget that. The story was one of great victory and great success as she waited on God, as she was transformed by God, and his strength began to flow through her. His personality began to began to flow out of her but it came from a period of waiting, consistent waiting. So brothers and sisters, waiting is a common part of our life, accept it, but monitor it because there are dangers. It's a time of vulnerability. 
but then finally welcome it because God is at work in those times of waiting. He's working on our temperament. He's working on our timing. We know how to hold still and stay still until he says to move. He's working on our trust. He's building a heart that just loves and trusts him. But finally, he's transforming us, developing a partnership with us, developing dependence upon him so that when we work, it's him working through us and he gets the glory and we gladly give him the glory because we know it's not us, but him. This happens in times of waiting. Jesus, I pray that for those who are in this time of waiting, that this word will encourage them, will strengthen them to stick in the battle because you're at work. Lord, may, may they be vigilant in the midst of this waiting. I pray for victory for them. I thank you for this word and I praise you for it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, brothers and sisters, have a wonderful week. I hope this was an encouraging word. And uh, we'll see you next week. I have a follow-up message, not only how to respond when God says to wait, but next week we're going to talk about what to do while you're waiting. What to do while you're waiting. Because waiting is never wasted. God is doing things, and there are things we can do to work with him. So that'll be next week. We'll see you next week. God bless your week. Bye-bye.